Hey guys, welcome to another episode. Uh, this week, kind of going over the British North American colonies. I very much apologize for putting this up so late. I had a very busy weekend and um, just kind of remembered a little while ago, so I'm sorry for that. But let's begin in going over some of those kind of key terms for this like 16, early 1700s of British colonization of North America. All right, glad to have you aboard. All right, guys, so the, uh, some of the key terms and kind of key topics of this uh, section include enslaved natives. So as we, you know, reading through your chapter and go looking through the content, <laughs> there are multiple examples from the Carolinas all the way north to New England of many wars between the um, you know, English colonists and their Native American uh, uh, sort of peers, right, in each region. And each of those regions, hundreds and hundreds, are taken as kind of prisoners of war and later on sold to slavery in the uh, West Indies, in the Caribbean. And the Caribbean, again, a heavy sugar-cultivating region, right? Sugar-growing, massive moneymaker, even more so than the tobacco coming in from the Chesapeake region. And a lot of these natives will fall ill, right, with those European diseases and die. But this sets the stage for, you know, the kind of labor situation, right, with forced labor. Uh, first, kind of beginning with Native American kind of prisoners of war. And, of course, later on with the massive numbers of African slaves that will be used, especially in the south and many parts of the colonies. All right, guys, on that same vein, uh, we have the, a term called the Middle Passage. So this refers to basically the voyage taken by African slaves from Africa uh, through, uh, of course, uh, past the Atlantic or through the Atlantic to the Caribbean. Uh, and then uh, basically their journey across the Atlantic, a journey that could take, you know, best case scenario, one month, usually longer. Horrid conditions, right? Maybe only comparable to things like the Holocaust and some of the worst things ever in world history. But you have, you know, men, women, children, cramped, uh, naked, you know, fed just enough to keep and try to keep in good health and relatively good shape. And then, uh, of course, chain bound and all those things, right? Then once transported to the Caribbean, where, where they would go to auction and be sold. And from there, they could go to South America, Central America, uh, North America, again, for, <coughs> for forced labor. So again, just one of the most terrible things in kind of U.S. history, right? This incredible um, voyage that they endured and uh, you know, to get to the new world and to be used as labor. So that is called the Middle Passage, the route for African slave labor to the new world. All right, guys, the uh, next term is the British West Indies. Again, really important region and one that's going to have a long history and really tie into the American colonies early on. Again, massive sugar cultivation. Um, we talked about the tie-in with places like Barbados and things like that to the east coast of the United States. Um, a key, you know, it's a key kind of part of this trade between, of course, you have the African slaves, right, coming from, from Africa, goods being traded with those African kingdoms, then those laborers being moved from the Caribbean to North America and other places, you know, other things like rum, all those things also be transported to the north, to the American coast. So it's kind of like an important economic sort of partner that the colonies have. And a lot of colonists, a lot of especially the, you know, bigwigs that had, you know, sort of businesses, things like that, had commercial ties with the West Indies. So it's a key part of the economy of the British Empire in general, but very important to the North American colonies and really ties in with them pretty closely. Good. All right, guys, so we talked a little bit. Next term is the English Civil War. So, of course, this is the uh, basically battle between the Royalists and the Parliamentarians, right, that occurred during the 1640s, resulted in a parliamentary victory. And again, the whole issue was Charles I basically kind of ignoring the Magna Carta, ignoring kind of limitations on the king's powers, and eventually resulting in a bloody war, where forces led by Oliver Cromwell eventually overtake those of Charles I, and the you know monarchy's dethroned, at least for a while. 
right? And then later on it would be restored. But this is kind of another step in the evolution of the monarchy of England losing power and Parliament really asserting itself as sort of the ultimate authority uh, within the, the English government. Uh, another extension of that, <laughs> to not lose kind of that same thread, is the Glorious Revolution, right, of, eight, of 1688. And kind of another hiccup where James I, being a very forceful, wanting to take too much power, and uh, luckily instead of a nasty, ugly war that plays out, right, for a decade or something, it is a peaceful transition, right? That is why it's called the Glorious Revolution. So they basically exile him, move to France, and then he's replaced with his daughter and her husband uh, and William and Mary, and they emerge as the new monarchs of England. And again, that's why it's called Glorious. So in 1640s, English Civil War, 1688, we have the Glorious Revolution. All right, guys, another important term for uh, uh, this, uh, this kind of section is the Navigation Acts. So this will be something we touch on as we kind of get to the next few sections of the course. Well, these are some of the earliest sort of regulations placed on the North American colonies. You know, up to this point, especially where we're at, they've been given a lot of leeway, right? The colonies are just being founded, some for religious reasons, some for others. But, uh, you know, what England is going to start to do, slowly but surely, and of course we know how this ends, right, with the American Revolution, but it's starting to try to assert more control, to, to try to have more of a hand or a sway, a say in the American economy because of things like tobacco, because of timber, other things from parts of different regions and so forth. So the earliest of these, of these Navigation Acts, is passed in 1650-51, and there'll be many throughout a large span of time, you know, up through or up to the revolution or so. But again, it's the first kind of hiccup. And to give you an idea of some of these, you know, so basically like some of these said that certain goods could only be traded with England. So if you were, you know, Coastal Carolina, right, or uh, living in Charleston, Carolina, you were trading goods with you know, the Dutch or another foreign power, you could, you know, you could be in big trouble uh, with the English for doing that. Did it still happen? Of course, right? There's always smuggling. But again, it's just a sign of England kind of being a little bit more assertive, a little bit more strict with the colonies and the first step in that. Good. All right, guys, uh, a lot of the rest of these uh, go on to uh, certain regions of the colonies, right? Talk a little bit about the Dominion of New England in general. Uh, the importance, you know, there of the, the religious foundings, right, with the Puritans and the Pilgrims and so forth. And just how, again, New England, like a cultural region, is really important. Again, emphasizing things like knowledge of the Bible, education, and again, uh, you know, Massachusetts and the Plymouth uh, colony being kind of the core of that later on splits into Connecticut, right? Splits into uh, places like uh, Rhode Island, right, which is made up of kind of exiles from uh, Massachusetts and these regions. So really, really important. So just keep in mind kind of those big uh, points. Founded for religious reasons, they developed their own government system, right? One that is very strict with their kind of religious views and so forth. I think you'd be okay. Uh, good. There goes Maryland. Again, in Maryland, economically, all that much more tied into kind of Virginia. It was a proprietary colony or kind of given to one family, right? One owner, and that is uh, Cecil Calvert. Remember, founded as a haven for Catholics. And it kind of does have a little bit of that religious freedom, at least for a while. But eventually, the Protestants outnumber the Catholics kind of assert their political control over the region. So again, founded uh, not too long after Virginia, let's say maybe 20 years or so later than Virginia. But you know, by the time we get to, I think within a few decades, like I think maybe 1680s or so, Maryland reverts to being a royal colony again, uh, just like Virginia, of course, Virginia much earlier in 1624. Um, but again, economically, all that tobacco, indentured servitude, all that stuff. But again, uh, the founding, the purpose, religious reasons. Is a haven for, for Catholics. Good. Uh, Rhode Island, uh, very related, right, to the New England colonies and Massachusetts in particular. And the key thing here is 
I talked a little bit about this in class, right? It was Roger Williams, uh, the former Puritan minister, right? And then ends up being exiled because of his, some of his very progressive or different views regarding natives and different things. He's kicked out. He ends up resettling in Rhode Island, ends up being a key founding member of Providence, Rhode Island. And that community would grow and do pretty well. Rhode Island kind of in the beginning, kind of a, like almost like a, you know, a camp for sort of misfits, right? Anne Hutchinson also exiled there. Quakers that didn't quite fit in with their communities, things like that. Other Puritans who didn't fit in uh, end up kind of going to Rhode Island and doing fairly well. Uh, New York stands out from the original 13, because remember we spoke about it in class, or at least I talked about it, that it was uh, founded by the Dutch initially, kind of it was a fur trading outpost. They had multiple forts and sort of settlements. But eventually in the 1660s, it's overtaken by the English, who become kind of the overlords of New York. Also rename it right from New Netherlands to New York, and it's now an English colony. Uh, good. Uh, William Penn, founder of Pennsylvania, right? He talked about how his colony getting very successful, getting population, attracting people to come over. And again, religious founding was the reason, uh, or was the key, one of the key reasons in its origins, right? He was a member of this group we call the Quakers, or Society of Friends. And he thought a place that was open to worship, open to, uh, you know, for, to give people that religious freedom was key. And again, for him, works for a while, he grants lands, he's good at attracting people and kind of sort of advertising for his colony, but slowly but surely over time, right, that, that control and all that kind of, you know, gets loosed from his grasp. So again, that is William Penn in Pennsylvania. All right, guys, and lastly, the Carolinas, um, and we talked about again early on, right, kind of the turn of the century, around 1700 or so, initially kind of uh, founded by a group of proprietors and meant as a kind of debtor's uh, sort of haven, doesn't necessarily work that way. Again, some of the earliest people go there from Barbados because of all the land competition, how expensive land had gotten and on that island. They relocate and kind of form the Carolinas. And eventually, right after a couple of decades, they will split into North and South Carolina because of political kind of rivalries and differences. And the rest of the kind of the chapter ends up on a lot of uh, native and uh, English relations, right? We have the Pequot War, late 1630s, a uh, war involving New England, um, natives and the colonists. Now, a lot of these kind of follow the same thing, right? A brutal warfare from both sides, lots of casualties on both sides, but especially because of the disease and because of the competition for land, right? Eventually, the English end up, key thing is, you know, the natives are losing more land, losing more people, and they're kind of, you know, slowly but surely kind of on the way out, right? Or being pushed aside. And again, the Pequot War, just an example of that. Uh, another term is Medicom. So Medicom, also known as King Philip, there's a war named after him called King Philip's War in 1675. It takes place in Massachusetts and kind of those surrounding areas. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting kind of information on this war, but to not waste too much time, just give you the essence of it. You know, it involves uh, kind of the retribution of, of different tribes in the region. And King Philip ends up being kind of the, you know, sort of leader of the group that's kind of opposing the English colonists. But... At the time, it was, and even to this time, I believe it's the bloodiest war in U.S. history. You take into account the population uh, of the time. And again, massive deaths on both sides, but eventually kind of the all-out warfare of the colonists, as well as how good they were with using native alliances against King Philip's people, end up oh, taking a really large toll on the native population. And the English colonists are able to secure victory. But, but there were some really rough times. I mean, many uh, you know, New England villages are all-out destroyed, of course, many Native American settlements also all out destroyed. So again, just a very bloody time. Again, that's King Philip's War, uh, 1675. Just lasted a little bit more than a year or so. Good. Uh, Bacon's Rebellion. Uh, we'll touch on this a bit more in class soon, really soon. 
But basically what happened in Bacon's Rebellion is sort of the ramifications of some of the stuff going on back in England. But you have a gentleman named Francis Bacon who's a newly arrived kind of elite member or rich person to Virginia. And he finds himself kind of on the outside looking in of the sort of ruling clique or ruling sort of elite of Virginia. And he becomes kind of a sort of a champion of many of the Virginians because the Virginians for a long time had been appealing to the governor of Virginia for help against natives uh, in the kind of uh, rural areas of Virginia. Well, lo and behold, Francis Bacon sees an opportunity here to himself kind of become a militia leader and a champion for these people against the natives. And it ends up being very ugly for the natives. A lot of them are killed and all that. But in that process, Bacon becomes kind of a, an uprising uh, leader and a pretty uh, charismatic figure. And eventually, he ends up kind of going after Jamestown itself and the governor itself, uh, but failing. He ends up kind of dying in the middle of the rebellion, and the rebellion kind of slowly but surely fades away. But again, it's just an interesting time where you have this sort of social, it shows, it shows how kind of uh, fragile this social system of Virginia is. And you have the problems with the natives, you have the problems with you know, only a few having a lot of the power in places like the House of Burgesses. So what Francis Bacon is kind of shed light on that and how, again, uh, kind of <laughs> how tenuous everything is and, and kind of, uh, you know, uh, maybe not so stable that society is, you know, is uh, Bacon's Rebellion. Uh, a couple of last one, <laughs> I guess the last one we'll talk about is Pope's Rebellion or Pope sometimes as he's called. So this involves uh, the Spanish and this occurs in 1680 in New Mexico. So, you know, one part of the important thing to emphasize in early U.S. history is, you know, a lot of U.S. territory was still under Spanish control. And you had a few settlements, such as those in New Mexico. This would be kind of the central portion of Mexico, right, uh, where the Spanish had been for some time. Now, what happens here is pretty amazing. It's really famous, this Popez Rebellion, because uh, him and his people meticulously planned like an uprising to basically throw out the Spanish from New Mexico. And they succeed. Um, you know, it is highly coordinated. You know, there's multiple books written on it. But, uh, you know, basically they kind of kill all the Spaniards that are there or, or drive them away. And for 12 years, New Mexico is entirely free of European influence or European colonization. Um, the Spanish uh, very famously had to retreat to kind of the El Paso region. And again, not till 12 years later, till 1692, did they go back and retake uh, central New Mexico. You know, pretty amazing kind of, uh, you know, story in that early colonization uh, time period. Uh, good. Uh, I believe that covers most of kind of the key things from Chapter 3, right? British North America. Thank you so much for your patience. Sorry for going a little bit long. Uh, have a great night. Enjoy your week. See you next time.